Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the links to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. It's the night of Wednesday the 13th of May 1943 and even though World War II is every day more brutal and deadly Japanese submarines patrol these very waters, the mood aboard the Australian hospital ship Centaur is fun and festive as the vessel sails north off the far north coast of New South Wales. British-born Eric Summers, who joined the Australian Merchant Navy in Singapore and who serves as Centaur's purser and one of its radio operators, has just learned some very good news from his own wireless. His wife Pauline, who he married early last year in Perth, has just given birth to their first child, a baby boy. This joyous announcement only adds to the already happy atmosphere created by the birthday celebrations being held for matron Sarah Jewell, who has charge of the 11 Australian nurses aboard Centaur. Having done a secret whip around in Sydney before the ship sailed yesterday morning, her nurses bought her a cake and got one of the ship's cooks to decorate it with white frosting. Across the cake is written in pink icing, Happy Birthday from the Centaur. For dinner, the nurses have decorated a table with white flowers. It's a lovely surprise for their beloved boss. Many of these nurses first served with Matron Jewel at the Australian General Military Hospital in Concord in Sydney. Then they worked under her direction on the hospital ship Aranya, which ferried Allied wounded back from the Middle East all last year and into the early months of 1943 when they transferred to Centaur. Matron Jewel's cake doesn't have candles because, well, a lady never tells, though she's actually just turned 39. Seated around the flower-laden table, enjoying their dinner party and musical accompaniment provided by some of the men aboard, these dozen nurses hail from all over Australia. Matron, 
She's from Perth. Her deputy, Captain Mary McFarlane, is from Cal in South Australia. Margaret Adams, Nan Rutherford, Alice O'Donnell, Jenny Walker, they're from Melbourne or country Victoria. Cynthia Holtane, Edna Shaw, Merle Moston, Evelyn King and Nell Savage come from Sydney and from regional New South Wales. Then there's Joyce Wiley, who's been everywhere. Born in Melbourne, she grew up in Bundaberg and then moved to Sydney to get her nursing certificate. Having qualified and worked during peacetime, after the start of the war, these women were called up as reservists. Then they volunteered for the second AIF, which meant they could work on hospital ships travelling to foreign theatres of war. These dozen young women, they're dedicated, skilled and very brave. Between them, they bring to Centaur more than a century's worth of nursing experience. And this is going to be vital in the coming days to ensure that as many of our boys as possible come back alive from the bloody fighting in New Guinea. They'll be tending the sick and wounded soon enough, but tonight's all about being jolly and enjoying the special menu the cooks have put on in honour of Matron Jewel. The male medical staff, soldiers and crew of Centaur are also enjoying the festivities because the ship's captain, George Murray, has allowed everybody two bottles of beer. After dinner and drinks, the nurses retire to the ship's main saloon. There, they finish off the cake and, just before 10 o'clock, say their goodnights and retire to their shared cabins. It's been a lovely night and, for all but one of the nurses, the last night of their lives. I'm Michael Adams and this is part one of the special two-part Forgotten Australia Anzac Day episode, Sister Savage and the Centaur Sinking. While most of the stories I research, write and present in this podcast aren't widely known, the sinking of Centaur is remembered as a Japanese war crime and as one of Australia's worst man-made disasters. Centaur accounts, at the time and subsequently, do spend time with survivor Sister Ellen Savage. However, they usually concentrate on what she did during the sinking and in the hours that followed. In making this episode, I've tried to present a fuller account of her so we can better honour an Anzac hero who, before, during and after World War II, devoted herself to service and saving lives. To make this show, I've used newspaper reports ranging across most of the 20th century along with digitised records found at the National Archives of Australia and family details found at ancestry.com.au. Additionally, I've been fortunate enough to be able to check my information against Christopher S. Milligan and John C. H. Foley's impeccably researched 1993 book, Australian Hospital Ship Centaur, The Myth of Immunity. I highly recommend this work as it's the most exhaustive inquiry into every angle of Centaur's demise. The book is out of print, but you should be able to find it on eBay from about $30. For more recent developments in the Centaur story, check out David L. Meehan's 2017 memoir, The Shipwreck Hunter, which contains a chapter detailing how he discovered the ship in its deep sea grave. Both of these books also owe a debt, as do I, to the two-third AHS Centaur Association Incorporated, a group dedicated to honouring those who served on Centaur and whose lives were affected by its sinking. Now, 
No two places on earth are the same, but Riga, the coastal and very cultural capital of Latvia, and Karindai, small landlocked town in mid-north-western New South Wales, could hardly be more different. Henry Savage was born in Riga in 1869. He became a tailor and emigrated to the colony of New South Wales in 1892. Around the turn of the century, Henry was to settle in Corindai and made himself at home in this small farming community. In 1907, he married local woman Sarah Mulheron, who worked as a nurse in the town's hospital. The couple had their first daughter, Winifred, in 1908. A second daughter, Kathleen, followed the next year. Henry and Sarah rounded out their family with a third baby girl on the 17th of October, 1912. They named her Ellen, though they'd call her Nell. The Savages were a staunch Catholic family, and the three girls, Wynne, Kitty and Little Nell, went to St Joseph's Convent School in Corindai. In the 1920s, they'd be occasionally mentioned in the local newspapers for their participation in welcomes and farewells to the district's priests and for their efforts in charity concerts and other fundraising events. Nell was academically clever and, in 1924, was the convent's top girl when students sat an examination for a bursary. After Winifred left school, she studied to be a teacher. Kathleen, meanwhile, would get a job as a stenographer. But after Nell got her intermediate pass in 1928, she followed in her mother Sarah's footsteps by studying to become a nurse at Royal Newcastle Hospital. Nell did her training there between 1929 and 1934. During her time off, when the weather was nice and hot, she enjoyed a pastime she'd been denied growing up in landlocked Corindi. This was body surfing on Newcastle's beaches. Nell was good at it, and she became a strong swimmer. By now, Nell stood five foot six, which made her tall for a woman at the time. She had blue eyes, a fair complexion, and wore her short, curly brown hair back from her forehead. Nell Savage had a good sense of humour and a pleasing, dimpled smile. When she found something funny, which was often, her loud and distinctive laugh could be heard from a long way off. Nell was serious, though, when it came to nursing. She got her general qualification in 1934. From 1935 to 1937, she lived in Sydney with her parents, who'd given up far-flung Corindai for Leafy Gordon on the North Shore. Nell worked in private nursing, and she passed her midwifery exam at Crown Street Women's Hospital in mid-1936. Next, she got her mothercraft certificate at the Dressilian Baby Care Clinic in Petersham. In December 1938, the New South Wales Special Gazette noting public service appointments recorded that Ellen Savage was henceforth to work for the Department of Public Health. In this capacity, she was appointed as nurse in charge of Tamworth's Baby Health Centre. What was to become known as the Second World War began in September 1939. As the conflict worsened from mid-1940, qualified nurses were called up to serve as reservists in the Australian Army Nursing Service. Sister Ellen Savage was summoned to do her bit in late May of 1941. She was detached to the newly built 113th Australian General Hospital in Concord in Sydney. By the time she did her first shift, the wards were filling up with diggers who'd been wounded in North Africa. At the AGH, Nell worked with and befriended matron Sarah Jewell and other nurses with whom she'd later serve on the Urania and Centaur. 
Nell would become closest to sister Evelyn King. Although seven years older than Nell, Evelyn had followed a similar career trajectory. She was from a small New South Wales country town, in this case, Narandra. She'd trained regionally at Cootamundra District Hospital before doing obstetrics at Crown Street Hospital. Like Nell, she then returned to country service, in this case, Tumut Hospital, before she was called up and detached to the AGH. While Evelyn was her best friend, working at Concord meant Nell made another mate. This was a stray dog that she named Paddy and took home to live with her and her parents in Gordon. Reserve nurses, like malicious soldiers, could only serve in Australia and its territories. But as 1941 progressed and the war against the Nazis intensified, nurses' skills were needed closer to where the action was, and that meant many of them volunteered for the second AIF. Nell Savage did this in mid-November, and so did Evelyn King. Three weeks later, the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor and the Malay Peninsula. The whole world was now at war. For the time being, though, the Middle East was still where Australian nurses were needed. In late January 1942, Evelyn deployed on the Arania. This was a large and fast luxury passenger liner that had been loaned to Australia by the Dutch government in exile and converted into a hospital ship. Matron Sarah Jewell had charge of Aranya's nurses as they tended to wounded and sick Australian, New Zealand and British soldiers being brought back to Australian military hospitals. Sister Nell Savage, now an AIF lieutenant, joined Evelyn, Matron Jewell and other friends on the Aranya for its next Middle East Mercy Mission, sailing from Sydney on the 10th of March 1942. As dedicated as Nell was to her patients, and as glad as she was to be working alongside her fellow nursing sisters, she found life on a hospital ship stressful and unpleasant. Stressful for dealing with grievously injured young men. Unpleasant because she was prone to seasickness. There was also the lurking fear that Aranya, though as a hospital ship legally immune from attack under the Geneva Convention, might still be sunk. After all, floating mines couldn't see hospital ship markings. It was also possible that a German or Japanese submarine commander might make a mistake or commit an act of military malfeasance. What would they do if they wound up in the water? Nell Savage and Evelyn King did discuss this. Evelyn was particularly worried because she couldn't swim. But Nell reassured her friend that if the worst came to worst, she would crocodile Evelyn to safety. On that first Aranya voyage, Nell's worries were more quotidian. She was just so seasick that she actually asked Matron Jewel for a transfer to land. But her boss said Nell was doing such fine work that she'd simply have to tough it out. She did, spending 12 months on Aranya. Then, in mid-March 1943, Nell and Evelyn and their friends were transferred to Australia's newly converted hospital ship, Centaur. Now at least they'd be operating closer to home. Caring for soldiers, Centaur would transport to Australia from the increasingly desperate fighting in New Guinea. Centaur had been built in Scotland in 1924 as a combined passenger and cargo vessel. The ship spent much of its working life carrying a few people and a lot of cattle between Fremantle and Singapore. These voyages were pretty humdrum. But there were two notable exceptions that presaged Centaur's eventual role as a vessel meant to save lives. 
In November 1938, Centaur's captain, George Murray, picked up an SOS from a disabled Japanese whaling vessel, Kaio Maru, which was wallowing in heavy seas off the Western Australian coast and was in danger of sinking. Captain Murray diverted Centaur and, at some risk to his own crew, towed the Japanese ship to the safety of Geraldton. Three years later, in November 1941, Centaur was now a British merchant navy ship. After the deadly naval battle off the coast of Carnarvon resulted in the sinking of both the HMAS Sydney and the German cruiser Cormoran, Captain Murray and his crew joined the search for survivors. Though all 645 men on the HMAS Sydney died, 318 of Cormoran's 399 crew survived, with Centaur saving 62 Germans found in a damaged lifeboat by providing them with safer lifeboats and towing them to Carnarvon. After Japan entered the war, Centaur from October 1942 was requisitioned to run supplies from the east coast of Australia to New Guinea. Then, at the start of 1943, Centaur was ordered converted into a hospital ship. At 315 feet, Centaur was just under half the length of Aranya, and at 3,222 tonnes, it was about one-sixth that big Dutch ship's weight. But being small and light made Centaur better suited to get in and out of shallow New Guinea waters. At docks in Melbourne, 150 men worked 68 hours a week to turn the merchant vessel into a hospital ship. By mid-March, Centaur was ready. The big cattle decks had become wards with beds for 250 patients. Elevators made it easier to move immobile or incapacitated patients between decks. Large watertight doors made it possible to embark and disembark large numbers of men more rapidly. Centaur had quarters for 65 medical staff and nurses and 75 crew members. The ship was equipped with up-to-date medical equipment and surgical theatres, fitted with the latest in ventilation and refrigeration so it could cope with the tropical heat and had a galley that was capable of providing 300 meals at a time. What was inside was impressive. So was Centaur's exterior. The ship was red, white and green, like a Christmas tree, and at night it was lit up like one too. This was so that enemy aircraft and submarines would see it for what it was and spare it from strafing, bombing and torpedo attack. Red Cross Ship 47, as Centaur was identified, bore a red cross 20 feet by 20 feet on top of the navigation bridge. Another two Red Crosses of similar size were atop the docking bridge and steering engine house. There were three vertical Red Crosses on each side of the ship measuring 7 by 7 feet and the entire vessel was encircled by a green band 5 feet wide. All of these markings were lit up by spotlights at night. Also visible in the darkness were neon crosses measuring 4 by 4 feet which were attached to either side of Centaur's funnel. As yet a further safeguard, Centaur's dimensions, markings and appearance had been communicated directly by the Australian government to its Axis enemies, with the Japanese receiving this information on the 5th of February 1943. Following a quick test run, in mid-March 1943, Nell Savage, the nurses, medical staff and Centaur crew sailed on the ship's first real mission. Departing from Sydney, they took medical staff to Port Moresby and brought American and Australian casualties back to Brisbane. 
This accomplished, Centaur continued on to Sydney, docking at Darling Harbour on the 8th of May. Now, Captain Murray got new orders. Centaur was to sail direct to Cairns with 192 soldiers of the 2nd 12th Field Ambulance. After reaching Cairns, he'd receive further orders. Presumably, Centaur would take this medical force to New Guinea and return with wounded soldiers. On this voyage, Nell was to share a cabin with sister Merle Moston. Their berth was on the port side. Nell's best friend, Evelyn King, shared the next-door cabin with another nurse. Nell packed the essentials, uniform, casual clothes, sportswear for exercising, makeup and toiletries. She also took her two watches and an alarm clock for getting up. Still a devout Catholic, she also packed her rosary beads. While Centaur was loading, there was a controversy over whether the field ambulance soldiers were legally allowed to take their rifles aboard a hospital ship. Before this was resolved, there was a waterside union stop work, leading to later theories that Japanese spies had become aware of this issue and told their superiors that Centaur was secretly carrying munitions and was thus a viable military target. Centaur sailed from Darling Harbour at 10.44am on the 12th of May. In addition to the 192 men of the 2nd 12th Field Ambulance, aboard were 53 medical personnel and 75 civilian crew. Add in the dozen nurses, and that was 332 souls. Those aboard Centaur ranged from teenager to sexagenarian. The youngest was Bob Westwood, a 15-year-old cabin boy from Melbourne who'd already spent the past nine months at sea. Most senior, at 67, was a Torres Strait ship pilot by the fitting name of Jock Salt. Old Jock had already lived through a sinking in Milne Bay the previous year when the ship he was on was shelled by the Japanese. Jock wasn't the only such survivor aboard Centaur. Mark Hoggins, a ship's cook from Melbourne, had survived the torpedo sinking of a ship on the Australian East Coast earlier that year. But he and Jock had nothing on Centaur's third officer, Ernest Banks of Brisbane. He'd lived to tell the tale of his ship being sunk by a bomber off the coast of St. Nazaire. Then Ernest had been on a ship that had gone down after being torpedoed off Gibraltar. He'd been on yet another vessel that had suffered the same fate in the North Atlantic. Among the men aboard were as many as eight sets of brothers. Mark Hoggan's brother Trevor was one of Centaur's bakers. Then there were the Leask brothers. When war broke out, Harold, Alexander, Henry and Malcolm Leask of Maryland's in Sydney's West had all joined the Army Medical Corps. In autumn 1943, Malcolm, who was the baby of the brothers, was working on Centaur. But his pregnant wife was sick, so at the urging of his siblings, he got leave so he could take care of her. Thing was, his older brothers, Harold, Alexander and Henry, they were all in the 2nd 12th Field Ambulance. Unbeknown to Malcolm, after he left Centaur, his brothers were ordered to board for the journey to Cairns. As well as blood relations, there were plenty of best mates on the ship. George McGrath and Britt Stevens had bonded growing up and playing sports in Braidwood in central New South Wales. Both were now in the field ambulance. George had just gotten engaged, while Britt was already married with three young sons. In February 1943, the mates had taken leave together and returned to Braidwood, where they were given a civic reception and a dinner and cajoled into making speeches. 
No doubt Britt Stevens during this time was asked more than once to tell the story, already recounted in the local paper a few months earlier, of how while in camp up north he'd triumphed in deadly mortal combat against a 12-foot python. Centaur's chaplain, meanwhile, was the Reverend Captain Ernest Laverick, who, until recently, had been ministering to Japanese POWs held in internment camps, even defying orders to give communion to those who professed to be Catholics. While the POWs loved the Padre, and he seemed spiritually satisfied by the work, Reverend Laverick was reportedly so pleased at getting his appointment to Centaur that he'd thrown his hat into the air with excitement. These are but a few glimpses of the 332 people aboard Centaur as it sailed north from Sydney. While Japanese submarines were active along this stretch of the Australian coast, Centaur was presumably safe thanks to its markings and lights. Captain Murray also used paravanes to protect the ship from floating mines. On the first and second day of the voyage, Nell Savage and her fellow nurses tended to the minor health complaints of soldiers and crew members. And, like the rest of those on board, they took part in repeated drills designed to get them to the lifeboats in the event of an emergency. Then, on the night of the 13th of May, Nell, the other nurses and crew members, celebrated Matron Jules' birthday with that dinner party, decorated cake and cheeky beers. Nell was asleep soon after her head hit the pillow at 10pm. We know so much about the sinking of Titanic because two hours and 40 minutes elapsed between the great liner hitting the iceberg and going to the bottom. That disaster unfolded gradually, and though it began late in the evening, many crew and passengers were awake, and so they were aware of what was happening from the start to the finish. Over 1,500 people died, including Alfred Nichols, my great-great-uncle, who was Titanic's bosun. 705 men, women and children survived, and in many cases these people were able to give detailed accounts of what had happened during those 160 minutes, from the time they realised something was wrong, to the moment they saw the ship disappear beneath the waves from the relative safety of their lifeboats. But Centaur sinking would be very, very different. For starters, Few, apart from the Midnight Watch, were awake just after 4am on Thursday the 14th of May 1943. Centaur was heading north at about 12 knots on calm seas under clear skies. The brightly lit ship now off the coast of Queensland, about 25 nautical miles east-northeast of Point Lookout on North Stradbroke Island. One of the men on watch saw what he thought was a porpoise streaking towards the ship. This in fact was a single torpedo fired from an unseen Japanese submarine and at 4.10am it caused an almighty bang as it pierced Centaur's portside hull. The torpedo hit in the vicinity of the number 3 oil fuel tank about 7 feet beneath the waterline. As far as these things went it was a direct hit because moments after that first impact came a second far more powerful explosion as all that oil detonated with the force of a massive bomb. All at once, a deadly shockwave and fireball swept the decks as tons and tons of seawater rushed in through the enormous hole in the hull. Down below, 900 tons of unsecured ironstone ballast rushed forwards, sending Centaur ploughing into the deep by the head. In her cabin, Nell and her roommate Merle were thrown from their bunks by the concussion of the blasts. 
Getting to their feet, they saw through their porthole window that Centaur was already ablaze. Nell was too shocked to speak. She had wondered how she'd react in such a scenario and was surprised to find that she felt no panic but instead felt calm and took comfort in a silent prayer that she and her friends would be delivered to safety. From the next door cabin, Evelyn King burst into the room and said, Quick Savage, out on deck. Nell grabbed her life jacket, which she'd left unstowed after that day's drill. The emergency evacuation rehearsals had instilled in the nurses that to reach the lifeboats, they needed to get to the deck via the companionway. But this stairway was ablaze, and anyone who tried to pass it would be incinerated. Nell, Evelyn and Merle raced for another stairwell. As they ran, they tied their life jackets in place. They made it to the deck and saw only carnage and chaos. The bridge was ablaze and timbers and riggings falling as waves swallowed the ship from the bow. There was no time to launch any of the lifeboats that had not already been damaged or destroyed by the explosion, fire and falling debris. On deck, Nell saw the ship's commanding officer, Lieutenant Colonel Clement Manson. He was in full dress, even to his cap, and had his life jacket on. Colonel Manson said kindly, That's right, girlies. Jump for it now. Now? Nell, Evelyn and Merle were wearing only their silk pyjamas. While the days had been warm still, the water at night would be cold enough to kill them in hours. Now Nell spoke for the first time since the explosions to ask Lieutenant Colonel Manson, quote, Will I have time to go back and get my greatcoat? He said, No, jump now. Nell did. Hitting the water, she was caught in Centaur's suction. Nell was sucked down and down, seemingly for fathoms, and was hit so hard in the head by debris, she thought she was going to lose consciousness. In those seconds, Nell sustained three fractured ribs, a broken nose, ruptured palate, perforated eardrums, and plenty of facial lacerations and bodily bruising. None of these would kill her, but the rope she was tangled up in just might. Nell fought and then miraculously found herself free of the suction and of the ropes. She shot to the surface, gasping for air and flailing in oil-slick water. Looking around desperately was to see that Centaur was gone. It had been just three minutes since the torpedo had hit. Her best friend, Sister Evelyn King, was gone. Nell had lost sight of her on deck. She didn't know if she'd died on the ship or jumped and drowned when Centaur went down. Merle Moston had jumped but was killed by debris in the water, as were many others when Flotsam shot to the surface from the sinking ship. All the other nurses, Nellie's friends, colleagues, comrades, just hours ago celebrating Matron's birthday, were already dead or soon would be. Mercifully, many sleepers would have known little or nothing of what was happening the shockwave killing them instantly, or at least rendering them unconscious before the fire and water did their worst. Yet survivor accounts, those published in the newspapers at the time and given at the subsequent war crimes inquiry, paint horrific pictures of what those three minutes were like for those who escaped the initial blasts and battled to stay alive and get off the ship. Chief Pantryman Ronald Moat of Williamstown was in bed when the explosion rocked Centaur. He would tell reporters, quote, The ship was a mass of flames a few seconds after it was hit. Many below would be burned to death. The ship sank so quickly that many more were trapped below. 
Ronald Moat made it to the deck and was with Captain Murray, Steward Jesse Stutter and Assistant Steward Charlie Kerry when Centaur was simultaneously engulfed in flame and covered by water. Quote, Fire belched up and covered the bridge and the ship started to slide down. I saw a mast break away and then we were sucked down. Only Stutter and I came up. When the torpedo hit, Frank Davidson, ship's butcher, was hurled against the bulkhead. Reaching the deck, he was met by a wall of flame that burned his eyes. Then, encountering a nursing sister, he gave her a life jacket and told her to jump. Frank never saw her again. But he would see a group of men hopelessly trapped in the burning companionway and was haunted by the fact he'd been able to do nothing to help them. Lieutenant Colonel Leslie Outridge, the second 12th commanding officer, had a berth 60 feet from the explosion. As the Sydney Morning Herald would report at the time, quote, when he opened his eyes, the cabin was a mass of flame. Even the life belts on the walls were on fire. He stepped out into a swirl of water in the tween decks and washed along the forward companionway. The ship was sinking rapidly. Lieutenant Colonel Outridge would say, quote, I was washed through the twin deck companionway and then got entangled in ropes and broken booms from the boat derricks and had a terrifying experience getting free. I am a strong swimmer, but I was in such a condition that I was lucky to find a raft almost as soon as I cleared the sinking ship. When Lieutenant Colonel Outridge got free, suffering burns to his head and his hands, only 30 feet, one-tenth of Centaur was still showing above water. And when he said he got to a raft, he meant damaged rafts that had floated free or any bit of flotsam large enough to support a man or men. Captain Jock Salt, that old Torres Strait pilot, also made it off Centaur. Quote, I was in my bunk when I heard an explosion. I raced up the companionway and found the whole deck ablaze. Pouring a bucket of water over my hands, I wrapped a blanket round myself and made my way through the flames to the boat deck. It was too late to do anything except get out if you could, so I went overside and swam to a raft where I joined 13 others. Ernest Banks, the third officer, also made it off Centaur, meaning this was the fourth sinking that he'd survived. Storman Jim Waterston from Perth said he'd been trying to get to the lifeboats when the stern reared up 60 feet and the vessel plunged down. As it sank, he said, he heard the screams of nurses on the burning promenade deck and the screams of countless men trapped below. The brothers, Trevor and Mark Hoggins, were in berths on opposite sides of the ship. After the torpedo hit, they rushed to find each other. Trevor said, quote, I grabbed a lifebelt but was halted by the flames and debris. Then I rushed along, calling for Mark. He had the same idea, and I found him amidship calling for me. We went over the side, and, swimming away, we eventually reached a section of the bridge house to which some fellows were clinging. There were 22 of us on the bridge house and a raft nearby. Harold, Alexander and Henry Leesk didn't have the same luck. All three brothers were never seen again. And fortune smiled on only one of those two mates from Braidwood. George McGrath would live to see his fiancée again. That was because... His bladder full from those two bottles of beer at the birthday dinner, he'd risen to go to the toilet just before 4am. George had been sitting on his bunk when the torpedo hit. As he'd tell the Sydney Morning Herald 50 years later, quote, All of a sudden, there was this almighty bloody explosion with a huge fireball. It blew me right out into the passageway. 
George thought it had happened just after 4am rather than 4.10. In any event, quote, something told me not even to go back for my life jacket. It was some sort of signal and it saved my life. Being wide awake gave me the advantage. The other blokes might still have been asleep or unconscious from the force of the explosion. George's mate Britt Stevens wouldn't survive the sinking. One of Britt's little sons, Tony, not yet four, simply wouldn't believe his dad was dead and for years would cling to the hope that his father had managed to swim away to safety on some Pacific island. Walter Tierney and Matthew Morris, who were both greasers, respectively of Port Pirie and Melbourne, made it to the deck. Knowing they'd likely never see each other again, they shook hands and jumped for it. Walter Tierney came to the surface and grabbed hold of a barrel to which another man was already clinging. This fellow gave an abrupt scream and went under, Walter Tierney believing he'd been taken by a shark. Matthew Morris, meanwhile, had survived the dive also and swum in the opposite direction and climbed onto a raft. A little while later, he pulled an oil-smeared figure from the water. It was Walter Tierney who, despite everything, quipped, Dr. Livingston, I presume. Matthew Morris would say, quote, That's the sort of mate I like to have on a shipwreck. More soberly, he added, I was very lucky. I left the engine room three minutes before the torpedo hit. No one else in the engine room was saved. Eric Summers, the purser and radio man who last night had been so delighted to learn he had a baby son, he didn't make it. Neither did Reverend Captain Ernest Laverick, who'd been so excited about being on the Centaur, he'd thrown his hat in the air. When Sister Nell Savage shot to the surface, she found herself right beside Corporal Tom Malcolm of the ship's medical staff. Realising Evelyn was lost and the centaur was gone, they swam to a piece of flotsam that proved to be the roof of one of the deck houses. Nell and Corporal Malcolm clambered onto it and balanced carefully so as not to tip themselves into the oil slick water. Corporal Malcolm would later give haunting testimony to the War Crimes Commission inquiry. Quote, we knew that we were on some wreckage that was slightly awash and, if possible, I wanted to get onto something else. We shouted out on the chance that someone would hear us. The only thing I heard was a woman screaming or possibly calling out. I think that was Sister McFarlane. That was the last I heard of her. We could not see to make out exactly who she was. Centaur had been emblazoned with Red Cross insignia and lights, but the Japanese submarine commander had attacked anyway. A precaution that Centaur hadn't taken because it wasn't Australian military operating procedure was to broadcast its position regularly via radio so both allies and enemies knew where the ship was. This extra layer of precaution against attack was then in use in the Northern Hemisphere by British and German hospital vessels. So, if they failed to make a scheduled radio check, the alarm would soon be raised and a search begun. But Centaur wouldn't be missed until it failed to reach Cairns. The survivors were on their own, suffering wounds and burns with sunburn, saltwater blisters, dehydration and starvation in their immediate futures. There were also the sharks, who, as the new day dawned, would circle first in ones and twos, and then in their dozens. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. 
Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. I'm Michael Adams and you've been listening to part one of the special two-part Anzac Day Forgotten Australia episode, Sister Savage and the Centaur Sinking. Part two will be available tomorrow. If you'd like to support Forgotten Australia, you can do so by becoming a patron. For just a few bucks a month, you'll be contributing to the research, writing and production of new episodes. And as a thank you, you'll get early access to episodes, exclusive bonus episodes and the full-length audiobook of Australia's Sweetheart, the glamorous and tragic true story of our forgotten movie star, Mary Maguire. Patrons also get access to a selection of newspaper articles, photos and files that I use to make each episode. You'll also get a shout out in the show. So a big thank you to Thomas Hegan, Miss Nick, Terrible, Kevin Bennett, Michelle Stewart, Joel Brock and Tony Mott. And thanks to all the patrons who are offering such kind comments about episodes and asking such interesting questions. I'm always happy to try to dig a bit deeper to provide more information. If you want to become a supporter, go to Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N, patreon.com forward slash Forgotten Australia. And you can also get there via ForgottenAustralia.com forward slash support. Forgotten Australia is written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land that's traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. As always, thanks for listening. 